Welcome to the Popcorn Talk Network. For the online broadcast network that features movie discussion, news, and interviews, press one. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. Us? Hey, look, we're here. Hi, welcome to a historic Hollywood watch-along. Real quick, uh, I want to mention that you can follow the Popcorn Talk Network online, youtube.com slash popcorntalknetwork, and on Twitter, at the Popcorn Talk. I am Lex Michael. I'm all over social media, at the Lex Michael, and with me are... Carrie Bible, uh, Twitter handle, at Film Radar. Byron Lee Thompson, at Byron Lee. And today we are doing a commentary for the motion picture Gilda from 1946, starring Rita Hayworth. This is a super cool movie. I uh, caught up with it again recently. Real quick, before we jump in, I just wanted to ask you guys, like, what was your initial experience with this movie? And then we'll, we'll jump right into it. Uh, I saw it on Laserdisc in 1985. Yeah. Fell in love with it. Thought it was amazing. Saw it in film school and was absolutely blown away by it. And I've seen it many, many times since. Cool. All right. Well, I think uh, we're going to jump right into this. So if you're watching along with us at home, cue up your disc or your uh, your digital stream. And I'm going to count you down. Three, two, one. And we're all going to hit play together. Are you ready? I think you're ready. Three, two, one. Play. There we go. And we're going. One second in. So, yeah, we have this... Uh, Lovely restoration information. And again, my hat's tipped to these people. They really save these films and make them make them look beautiful and keep them around for future generations. That's Absolutely. that's important. That's for sure. Very, very important. I'm a geek. I always applaud these credits at the UCLA Film Archive. <laughs> there you go. Well, and I feel like a lot of people don't realize how much effort goes into making sure that older films are preserved and are when you come to it as a new audience member now that you're seeing the best possible presentation. So two, I wanted to say right off the bat that this is a movie from 1946, but especially when I was watching it again recently, I was struck by how modern a lot of the film language feels when compared to a lot of movies that were coming out at the same time. And I feel like, and maybe you guys uh, disagree, but I feel like modern film grammar really started to become more prominent uh, or started to take shape in a more recognizable form around the 50s. I think some of the, the language of cinema uh, started to emerge uh, as we know it now. Um, but this movie... More than a lot of other movies that I have seen, certainly seen recently from the era, there's a lot of really interesting dynamic stuff going on visually. For example, I mean, it starts right up top with this first shot, which, you know, this, this pan up as the dice roll towards you, which I think is great. I think it, it makes things right off the bat have a, there's an energy to it that I think a lot of movies don't necessarily have in their first their first frame. And the narration, which is, of course, a big key for most noirs, which the noir influences all over this film. Yes. And also, uh, you see the immediate desperation. I mean, look at the very first image of Glenn Ford's face in this. And desperation is kind of a major key emotion in film noir. You've got desperate people who are all in desperate situations. Yeah, and, and you right away, talking about the noir aspect of this movie, that was something else that struck me, uh, especially now me having watched it most recently after our, our noir conversations uh, that we've been having, 
this movie's interesting to me for a number of reasons, uh, one of the chief ones being not, not only the way in which it uses those noir conventions, but the significant ways in which it departs from them. And we can talk a little bit more about that as the movie progresses. I'm thinking specifically in terms of the way it ends, and obviously we're not going to talk about the ending right up top. Well, significantly, because that's what you said, and I, and I wanted to kind of like capitalize on that, not, not just the ending, which of course, like you said, we don't want to give anything away. Uh, reading all the noir books, they specifically talk about Gilda as a real standout because it basically breaks all the noir rules. Sure. You, even though, even watching it without even the sound on, it looks more like a noir than most of the noirs we watch, but it does everything different. And the characters, to quote uh, Carrie about these desperate people, these are not only desperate people, but these are hateful people. Yes. These are, these are mean-spirited people. It, it's difficult, even though it's a, a great film, it's very hard to root for any of these people. They're they're pretty much trash. Oh yeah, and and dropping as you're watching the movie. So I thought in terms of that, I'd never seen anything quite like that because these were big stars at the time, and and they're not doing themselves any favors. These are not, you know, this is no Doris Day movie for sure. Oh yeah, I do. While I'm thinking about it, because we see now also the introduction of of Balin here. Uh, and his little friend. And his little. So <laughs> right. I want to be the little the, friend, the friend into the best. this man. He's, he's almost a character in this movie. He surely so is. I, I wanted to specifically address the little friend in question uh, because Byron, the last watch along that we did, which was the first watch along that we did, was for uh, Cat People. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're now two for two on movies with weaponized canes in them, which is odd. Yeah, but but good because it shows the time period because they're both films from the forties. Maybe that was a thing in the 40s. Like, you know, maybe some people carry a flask. Sure. And some people carry canes with with, with weapons in them. Sure. This but there's, there's a kink to this little friend. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I kind of wonder if the uh, censors were, like, off at a convention or on vacation or there was a flu in that office that the week this came up for approval because there was a lot of really threesome kink kind of woven all throughout this film, really. It is interesting that you say that because this was this was very much now it was forty six so we're yeah. we're into the era of the production code and there's a number of maybe uh, was uh, it was made early enough and maybe uh, without without super close supervision but there are a number of little elements of this movie some subtle some slightly less so that seem very uh, let's say body for a, a code era movie. Well, Charles uh, Vidor, the director, as you know, we were speaking right before we started taping, he was born in uh, Budapest, Hungary, Jewish descent, and uh, he was one of the people, I think, I don't even, I don't even really want to say anything, because I think Carrie probably knows a lot more about this than I do. He helped kind of launch Rita's career. He did, I think, three or four films with her before uh, this. No, he did, he did Cover Girl, Cover Girl in which, was, which was huge, right, at the yeah, time? Yeah, Cover Girl was a huge hit. Uh, yeah, it was a Beautiful Technicolor musical, by right. the way. Great movie. And uh, written by Virginia Van Up, who produced this, Gilda. Right. Yeah. Produced this film. Yeah. It seems like there was a, a kind of a familiarity, like a connection between those people. But yet, out of all those films, all I was trying to say is Gilda's the only one that looks like this. It doesn't look like anything else he's ever done. Sure. None of his other films follow this template at all. In, in Do you mean as far as the style, visual dynamics? Not, not only style and plot, but uh, Carrie so politely said the desperation. His films are much more mainstream. This is off the mark for his stuff. Sure. And especially some of the stuff that he did with Rita. They're, I, mean, I wouldn't say they're cheery, but nothing's like this. Well, he did three with Rita. This, the cover girl, Gilda. And then when Rita came back to America, she came back to Hollywood after her 
marriage to Prince Ali right, Khan. Right, right. And Affair in Trinidad was supposed to be her comeback movie. Also with Glenn Ford, right? Also with Glenn Ford, also directed by Charles Vidor, also written by Virginia Van Up. Rita was very, very unhappy with the script. It was a very terrible period in her life, but she sort of had to do it because at that point she'd run out on her contract, had a firestorm of negative publicity. A difficult so, time, I guess. Yeah, it. so she really kind of couldn't fight too much at that point she was at the mercy financially and otherwise of harry Cohn. so she kind of had to just acquiesce and make that film but those as far as i know and i think i'm right uh those are the three movies they made together vidor um virginia van up and rita hayworth and rita and glenn ford made a bunch of bunch of films together right and they, and they become like you said kind of like a pairing but uh to me gilda and i think uh my good friend lex is going to be a big kick out of this it became such an iconic film in the history of movies it's uh specifically used as a plot point in Mulholland Drive which is one of my favorite movies the David Lynch film well can you elaborate on that a little bit yeah that's where she gets her name she sees the she sees, yes. she sees the movie poster which is basically representation clearly of this film and she can't remember her name and that's where she gets her name so to speak which yes. is if you know anything about Lynch, he lives in noir, so that's like Absolutely. That's his whole thing. I do want to point out, it's, it's coming up in a little bit here, sure. but I think this is one of the all-time greatest entrances oh, in film for sure. Oh, Rita's? Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, if anyone out there watching is not familiar with Rita Hayworth, this is the ultimate movie. If you if you want to get what the fuss is about, oh, for sure. this is the movie to see. This is, again, I think an entrance is such an underrated thing because, to me, that's the first time you see that star in that movie. And to me, I think that's such an important thing. And this one, again, is, is legendary. I mean, you, it just sets the tone for everything. And it's just, it's a total wow moment. There's no other way to say it. And somebody said, I, I think it might have been Lex about the body, or was it you about the body nature? That was me. The entrance is, is full-blown. I mean, oh, that's, yeah. That's exactly what the definition of that is, so I totally agree with Carrie. That's uh, what also I think makes this movie really different. It's not like any of the films that all these noir directors have directed. It's a real standalone piece. And it's not just a Rita Hayworth film. It's a great film. Oh, absolutely. Well, she and Glenn Ford had great chemistry together. Absolutely. And uh, they're so good together in this. And um, this film just entertains me. Like, honestly, if you put me on a desert island and said I could pick a handful of movies and that was all I could have to watch on the desert island, honestly, this would be one of the ones I'd pick. Well, you were saying, Carrie, earlier, and I, and I know Lex was kind of chiming in about the Hayes Code and all these different changes that were going on. I wanted to go one further, especially since this is 46. You just said it. This movie's so entertaining. Yes. I think sometimes when that happened, those things were fairly easily overlooked if they were being entertained. If, if there was no distraction for the, as you put it, Lex, the bodiness, it didn't really cause a problem. It just kind of slipped through, which in this film, that's great. And I have another theory, too. I think some of the censors might have not been shall we say that sophisticated oh i agree so the <laughs> little friend that. with the cane right. and the whip and a lot of the, i don't think these censors were thinking yeah the oh gee is, this is total right. snm i don't think that even dawned perhaps on some of them who were pretty I really busy don't. yeah you're i think you're absolutely i right. still i think it was kind of maybe maybe over their heads sure again i i haven't done this but i'd almost love to go read the paperwork that appeared in their office if it's if it's findable on this film and see what they had to say, if anything, and see kind of what their notes were, you know, because I think that'd be kind of an interesting read. I agree. Like the memos back and forth and such, the notes. I do want to point out, this is one thing I am really big on, is acknowledging kind of the behind the scenes artists and craftsmen on movies, because these people are so important. And I can't remember, sorry, the name of the production designer offhand, but 
Look at these sets. Look how beautiful these casinos look. Look how glamorous and gorgeous. I mean, it just looks like this. Every detail of the set is beautiful. and it, it, Yeah, every detail of every set, too. Yeah, yeah. And later on, we're going to see some really amazing dresses and gowns uh, designed by Jean-Louis. And again, the, the Gilda dress, the put the blame on Mame dress, the Amato Mio dress, these are legendary in the fashion world. These have spawned so much, many imitators and are just, just I mean, the put the blame on Mame dress is probably one of the most influential gowns oh, in film sure. history. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, this, these people, what they did behind the scenes is really quite amazing. And what's great, too, is kind of how they, she's not in it, right? I mean, you know what I mean? It kind of builds up and builds. You're kind of like, God, when she's gonna, when's she going to show up? Like, what's going on? You know, it's like kind of really clever the way it sort of builds up the anticipation for when you are going to encounter Gilda. Yeah, as, as I was saying, Alexa, about the earlier, the noir stylings and stuff, by bringing her into it and making her such a major character, unlike Double Indemnity and Postman Noise Rings twice, she's a cut from an entirely different cloth. This is not just somebody who's going to overtake a man or who get her vengeance. There's a totally different idea going on here, which I think is great. I think that's one of the reasons like, why you said it's so entertaining because it's unexpected. Yes. A very uh, no less powerful central female character, but a very, very different type of femme fatale, if you will, than certainly many of the films that we were discussing. Yeah, there's so much um, bravado with the men in this that it almost makes it seem like it is more Rita's movie because she seems to be the only one that's kind of got it together. And she's very strong. Oh, yeah. Against, against all comers, so to speak. So it's kind of like you kind of rooting for it, even though it never really seems like a woman's film at all. I, I wouldn't use the word. I just To me, it's not a woman's film. It's not a man's film. It's just a great oh, movie. Absolutely. I mean, period. You know, like, just watch the scene, though, what Glenn Ford does with his eyes and kind of the looks he gives Munson. It's really... Really kind of fun to watch that. Lex and I were talking about how all these movies have influenced so much of the today stuff. I was wondering, you seeing this, do you see a lot of that pattern, all the templates that you see in like modern movies, like you know the Batmans, all these movies that have all these basically same scenes, they just kind of moving people around, whereas this is kind of like where it started. Absolutely, and it's like I was saying, like this movie feels uh, taken on its own so wildly dynamic to me, and we were talking about different character types and the way, you know, nobody is necessarily nice, you know, and uh, there, there, are, there are absolutely templates here and that I see uh, echoes of in numerous, numerous other movies, and then also, obviously, there are a number of direct references to uh, either Gilda or specifically, of course, Rita Hayworth a as the icon in all, all over uh, more modern cinema. I mean, the, probably the most obvious example is, of course, uh, is where I, as a, as a younger person, first became aware of Rita Hayworth was in Shawshank Redemption, where they actually used ah, the okay. piece of mm. Gilda in the movie. Right. Well, the original story, I think, was called Rita Hayworth and, and the, the Shawshank, Shawshank Redemption. Redemption. Well, G.I.s went nuts over this film. I mean, can you imagine you're like a young guy fighting in the war and you see this? I mean, just the impact of that is tremendous. And 
I also think it's interesting what you were saying earlier, uh, Lex. I, I, I see a big, strong bond between this film and one of your favorites, uh, Kiss Kiss Big Bang. Oh, absolutely. To me, they're almost the same film without, without the icon in Kiss Kiss, whereas the icon Rita is in this, clearly. It's basically the same type of story. You could definitely, I could definitely see that in a, the, in even a, with the narration, except there's a lot more in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, but it's the same idea. And a version, in a version of that movie where, where maybe the, uh, the Val Kilmer character is certainly a little more sinister, uh, I could see these dynamics very much in that movie. Well, I think this is like you had said before, this is the clarity and everything singled out in the Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and a lot of the modern movies. They homogenize and, and do multiple characters that maybe in an original film were just the one character because it's not like that today. They have to have more. There's so much more that goes on to making a movie. There's so many other variables that would, didn't exist at this time. That's why I kind of think this one kind of snuck in. I don't, I don't think people were necessarily aware of how great this was at the time. Oh, sure. Yeah, it got, it got, I believe it got lukewarm reviews at the time. One critic even called it high-class trash. But I think, as always, time is the ultimate um, you know, arbiter. Oh. My little friend. Yeah. Little friend's coming up again here. Yeah. They're toasting. I mean, they're really kind of building an intimacy in this early part of the movie between Balan Munson and, uh, and Johnny. And I like too, and this is something that we'll we'll see as a just something recurring throughout the movie. The way that Balin is constantly manipulating Johnny and getting one over on him, and even when Johnny thinks that, oh yeah, I'm I'm climbing, I'm getting ahead, it's all or almost all to to Balin's ends. It's all part of what Balin had set up for for his own purposes. Well, but, the plot. I was going to ask uh, you. Uh, carry about that. I, I, I always found it uh, has nothing to do with the enjoyment of the movie. Reading a lot about this movie for this episode, uh, I, I find that the plot itself is a little dense, a little thick with some of the other characters and such. Not that not that it takes away from the movie we're talking about, but this whole thing with the uh, bad guys in a sense that show up and all these other things that are going on, I almost feel like I get almost confused because that really doesn't have anything to do with the movie I'm watching over there with Rita Glenn, it, it seems like a very different thing. Yes, yeah. it's, it's we're getting to it. Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry, I I can't always talk during these because I just have to <laughs> lock in sure. and focus, especially at this juncture. So that's true. We do we do need to pause in recognition of one of the greatest motion picture entrances of all time, which is about to take place. And so you hear her sing before you see her again. This is just building anticipation. He looks so sinister. He, like, even when he smiles. Wait, wait, here's his head. Here he comes, here he comes. Wow. 
and they don't make them like that anymore. And two, it's like the, they're conveying an incredible amount of information through their performances non-verbally. And I think, tell me if you disagree, I think Johnny knows before he walks into that room. Yeah. He, well, he hears the voice. Yeah, he knows immediately. And he's, like, he's hoping against hope. Like, oh, please, I'm, I hope I'm wrong. I really sincerely hope it's not. And then Caesar, and you see it's like his heart drops into his stomach. And then, of course, the look that she gives him. And another thing, uh, the motif throughout the film is the smoking as a means of getting out your frustrations. And look how much she smokes in the, uh, throughout the movie. But he sure does look different now than he did at the beginning of the movie, huh? He somehow got it together. Uh, but I did, I did want to tag up, Byron, oh. on what you were saying uh, a minute ago about how it does feel like at a certain point in this movie, almost a, an entirely different movie starts to seep into it. All right. of a sudden, there's all this stuff about, wait, so Balan's involved in a, a tungsten cartel with right. a bunch it, of Germans? It, 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 it reminds me in a, in a very sad way, because I like the other movie uh, just as much, if not more. It reminds me of uh, Hitchcock's Notorious. Okay. Because there's this other plot line that it's just as important as the main plot line, but it's so hard when you have these beautiful people like Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman or Rita Hayworth and Glenn Ford. It's kind of hard to take your eyes off the prize when there's this other story going on. I kind of don't care. I'm kind of like, Tungsten, yeah, 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 whatever, Rita, Rita. <laughs> like, everything else is sort of, you know, way down on the list. Well, that, the whole thing with the... With did the she just insult him? <laughs> I yes! Think she did. Such I think a she hard name to him. remember, so easy to forget. That's like my life story. It's going to be so hard to talk over this because I just love her so much. It does seem, though, I, I do agree. A lot of the stuff with the, the cartel and the Germans and that whole that whole aspect of the movie does seem there almost as window dressing. I mean, it, there, the, it creates a lot of really interesting and exciting sequences later in the movie, but the movie still ne it never becomes about that. That stuff is always there at a certain point forward, and it's, it's going on. Well, it helps propel the stuff forward, like you said, and it's a great setup for some stuff, but clearly, just like Carrie said, we're kind of here for them. Yes. Rita specifically, so... It doesn't take away from anything. No, and the story never stops being very much and very strongly about the two of them, about Johnny and about Gilda. You know, I heard, one time I saw an introduction on TCM by Robert Osborne, and he said they were going to have Bogart be opposite Rita in this film, but it didn't wind up working out, which is like I got forward. But I really can't imagine that. I mean, I, I think you're probably right. I just It's just so weird that it seems like this is such the right fit. I can't, I honestly, though, couldn't imagine that combo because... I don't know. I just feel that she and Glenn Ford had this incredible chemistry that I just don't think she and Bogart would have been on that same page there. But Yeah, Lex was saying that uh, he could see in the eyes the recognition so clearly. I don't think, no disrespect to Bogart, I think that Glenn's the guy to pull that off. I think that's what makes this film so special. I'm not even a big fan of Glenn Ford, but he's in a lot of great noirs for sure. Well, and two, it's like you were saying, like, I think part of what makes Bogart Bogart is that in most of his roles, or certainly the more iconic ones, it's very much about you don't, the, the cracks are there in this man, but you don't see any of them on the surface. Whereas I think, especially in this movie, Glenn Ford, even when he looks very, you know, put together as he does in some of these earlier scenes, you can feel in moments, you can feel this man very much coming apart at the seams inside of himself. Well, the other thing is, too, I think Glenn Ford is great, but I don't think he has quite the star power of Rita. And that's what makes th certain guys like, say, I mean, this probably to a lesser degree, but like French Tone or George Brandt, they were so great with like Jet Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, Jean Harlow, because they didn't outshine them. 
they gave them great support, but they didn't overshadow or outshine them in any way. And I think Glenn Ford, as great as he is, he does not upstage or outshine Rita. No, not. I mean, it, when she is on screen, it is almost impossible for your eye to go anywhere else in the frame. Sure is for me. The unfortunate thing, though, for a lot of these, these stars is that Gilda was her signature movie. Sure. But a lot of times that image traps that star as much as it makes them, and they can never escape. And she would really spend the rest of her life, professionally and personally, trying to escape Gilda, and she never could. Well, I have a great quote from Rita on the subject, Lex, if you'd like to hear it. I would. She said that uh, she was always excited to meet men because they all wanted to take Gilda home. Unfortunately, when they got home, it was Rita. Yeah. Well, they, they went to bed with Gilda and woke right. up with me, was the, I think, the, the exact quote or something like that. But, yeah, I mean, Orson Welles was her second husband, and he said something to the effect of... The whole Wicked Gilda thing was completely false. It was like Lon Chaney. It was just right. a complete fabrication. It wasn't who she was. She was a quiet, gentle, sweet-natured person. And this whole image was just the exact opposite of who she was in personal life. But people expected that's how she was. When they met her, there was probably an immediate disappointment that she wasn't Gilda. And that kind of never, unfortunately, went away. Do you like the bathroom attendant, Lux? I do. I'm a big fan he's of this great. bathroom attendant. Well, he's he's kind of one of those fun character actors. You don't see it as much in movies today, like like this guy. Uncle Pio. Up there. <laughs> and this this really distinctive little fellow who just wandered into this room. The payoff for the earlier plot point, so to speak, the setup. Like I, I don't know that actor's name off the top of my head, but he's an incredibly distinctive-looking person. A lot of the character actors back then were, you know. Well, I also think it's good to show that uh, he's no slouch. The Glenn Ford character, he really is going to be able to be his little friend as well. He actually can see the things that are going on that aren't so great. Sets. It does. It's like the way, and I, I can't say I know much of anything about how much of this was intentional or how much of it is just what what Glenn Ford's presence is naturally. But it really does feel to me so much like even when he is meant to be in control, or at least when he's meant to feel in control, he doesn't seem fully in control. It does seem very much for most of this movie like things are happening to him. Is that what you that. meant by the fact that you thought that uh, he was basically setting him up, controlling the circumstances around him as we go along? Almost like he's just kind of walking into something that was already kind of placed there? He's playing a game. He keeps leaving them alone together, throwing them together in various you know, circumstances. 
Yes, it is an interesting question. <laughs> my my friend, the weaponized cane. <laughs> but it does, and and Byron, when we we made this reference when we were watching Cat People, but it does give much much in the way it gave the the therapist in that movie. It gives Balan an almost Batman villain quality. Oh yeah. And then there's a question too of how how much does Balin know and how soon? Because obviously by by the end of this story, it's it's all fairly plain to him. Actually, well before the end of the story, it's all fairly plain to him. But it's I'm wondering how much he knows when, like right now, because you see he's giving it's, and it's all done non-verbally and it's all fantastic. Some of it is just just eye movements, but he knows something. You're talking about the Balan character. Yes. also don't see that many white dinner jackets anymore. No. By the way, Rita Hayworth was a professional dancer from childhood on. Her father um, was in a had a partnership with, um, I believe, his sister called the Dancing Cansinos. And Rita was trained as a professional dancer as a little girl. And he even became her father's dancing partner. And she was basically never had a lot of education. He was putting her in really seedy casinos down in Mexico as a little girl and dancing with him and making her look kind of highly sexualized and a lot older than her age and um, all that's kind of a complicated story with her dad but uh, but she was a professional dancer from basically childhood
I guess the way he's framed here and in that outfit specifically, I could definitely picture Bogart's head on that. Are you making that Casablanca reference? Yeah. More appropriate PC dialogue for 1946. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's a wonderful way for Balan to control two people at once. Your husband is showing. Love that. <laughs> Did she say Kuja? Yeah. This is like he has this before he starts talking. He has this look like he's almost taken aback for a moment. Subtleties. Yeah, it's fantastic. There's and there's so many moments like that from all three of the leads in this movie. And it makes all of their performances. I mean, obviously, we we keep talking about how Rita Hayworth is just absolutely captivating whenever she's on screen. But it makes all three of the central performances so involving, because there's an incredible amount happening in every scene that is not that is not verbalized, that you only pick up watching the characters react to each other and watching the eyes move. Watch, okay, it was cinematography here. Uh, watch how she's obscured kind of in the dark, especially around her face, then her bodies. And the, watch, just watch the lighting in this scene. It's really, really interesting. I think the cinematography here was Rudy Matt, actually. Yeah, he was nominated for the uh, Oscar for it. And the way that her 
the way that she's framed and with her hair over most of her face, she's draped in the shadow and you just watch her eyes move as she tries to decide, you know, how do I, how do I respond to this line of questioning? Also, I find I find the look of Balin uh, in this movie interesting for a couple of reasons. And now, what I'm thinking of, because we were talking about Bogart a couple of minutes ago, uh, who obviously uh, played uh, Sam Spade uh, in the the novel The Maltese Falcon. Sam Spade is described as looking like a blonde Satan, and that to me is a little bit how Balin looks. And it's interesting because he doesn't have, to me, the the type of appearance that you would associate with a really uh, intense, evil, noir villain. You know, he looks... I mean, he has a sinister look to him, but he looks like a, more of like a posh, upper-crust type of guy. But he's got that scar on his face, which which says a lot. Yeah, and then, too, it's like he's got... I like, too, they, they drape him in black the entire movie as well, and he's got... You know, it's accented with white. The scarfs, you mean? Yeah, the scars, the little, you know, occasionally wears white bow tie. That's cut and all that, yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of that to the the costuming on the males in the movie. Obviously, they're all wearing dark suits, and the black and white cinematography makes the darkness of the suits and the whiteness of their of the shirts they're wearing under the the, the suits contrast very sharply. But you know, whereas they there's a, a certain uniformity to to the look of many of the male characters. Balin, even when he's in you know the suits that he wears, it looks like it's it's draped over him in a way that that none of these other characters appear. He's cloaked. Yeah, exactly. Cloaked is a is the word I was looking for. I like this scene right here. Uncle Pio just watches and hears things. He's kind of like the Greek chorus in this movie, if you will. And I like that he's not the subject of the frame, but until just that moment, he's in the background of the frame still, watching what's going on.
he is Carrie. I like your description of Uncle Pio as a, a Greek chorus type of character, and I also really enjoy. I mean, as he as he dispenses this uh, this style of washroom wisdom that he that he possesses, I enjoy how he periodically just seems very very amused by other people's business as it happens around him. And then also, I I enjoy even more how much he occasionally seems to amuse himself. Well, I guess if you're in a service job like that. The only amusement you have, really, is all the drama unfolding all around you. That's kind of your entertainment, I think, in this case. I like that framing, Lex, how small he is. <laughs> it's really great. And again, this same, this same very interesting-looking actor with uh, uh, very pronounced facial hair. I like the idea that obviously when you're when you're designing the look of this character, obviously the various pieces, hair, makeup, you know, the way his mustache is styled, these are all intentional decisions. But I also like the idea that in the universe of this movie, this character must spend at least a couple of minutes every morning adjusting his mustache to get it just just right, just to get the the, the points to stick off of his face in just the right way. Gabe Evans looked legitimately wounded for a moment there. <laughs> I love that line. It's so straight out of a Mae West kind of film. also quite a tie that Balan is wearing. It's loud. <laughs> the tie draws attention to itself. Oh, and yeah, there's there's our friend firing shots. So he had better look with his mustache, I think, than with the shoes. Than with the gun, absolutely. If he if he had spent as much time practicing his marksmanship as he spent finally crafting his facial hair, I think the scene would have had a very different outcome. 
There is shadows. And now he's, you know, he's shuts himself in there and he pulls the trigger on himself and we we lose this wonderful odd-looking character from the movie. Está muerto. And what a wonderfully callous response to this man having just shot himself in there. Saying the ocean would have been quieter. Again, I'm marveling at the sets here. By the way, in looking up these sets here, I have a thing here. Uh, let's see. Art direction by Stephen Goosen and Vanessa Pogalisi. Set direction by Robert Priestley. Set decoration, excuse me, by Robert Priestley. I know Vanessa Pogalisi actually worked at RKO for several years and was really responsible for a lot of the incredible sets of the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies. So those beautiful like art deco kind of magical, surreal sets he was uh, very much behind. Yeah, and they, they give each space in this movie so much personality and after a handful of scenes, because you spend so much time in in some of these similar big environments, it starts to feel very, very familiar in a way that I think you can only accomplish by by crafting a production design to a level that makes it feel incredibly real. These all feel, I mean, you know in your mind that these are, these are sets, brilliant sets, but you know somewhere in your mind that they are sets, but they feel so lived in and authentic. Ah, uh, now we start getting to the the meat of the business about the cartel. In tungsten, of all things. I don't know how many uh, uh, crime stories or stories with a criminal element revolve around the barter of tungsten. Zero? I was going to say, like, man, this, th this would be the Maybe one, this I guess. Is the one. Yeah. This is the the tungsten crime movie. Well, it's a film like no other, so that makes sense. I think it's things like this, uh, Lex, that really distinguish it from the other films where we were talking about the noirs and stuff. Because there's kind of a triangle, but kind of not. It's very uneven. 
they seem to have just as much in common as he and Rita. Sure. In terms of moving away from all those noir templates, so to speak, that we were speaking of, it's like they have this relationship that he really wants to go further, and yet that's not going to happen. Yeah, the 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 dynamics between the three of them are fascinating and they're constantly shifting but there are certain things that are that are consistent as far as uh, it does like i was saying before it does seem to me like for much of this movie johnny for all that he thinks he's in control really is not he's being very subtly and grandly manipulated by balan and very uh not so subtly we see like we see it again like Gilda knows exactly what it does to Johnny to see her uh you know uh going to and from these these encounters with other men she's doing that very intentionally and Johnny has no real he doesn't really have any hand to play His one his one move really until a little bit later in the movie is just do what the boss says. Because to act on the feelings that this you know, beyond obviously, you know well that's that's the boss's wife. You can't be doing that with the boss's wife, but to really act on his feelings in a personal way for his for his own personal satisfaction would be to essentially expose the two of them, expose the fact that they know each other, they had this history together. Tries. Tries to be in control and is not. You can't control Gilda. No. It's futile. It's absolutely fantastic watching her just walk all over him in every scene. Oh, and the shadows here, too. 
By the way, this is actually Rita's real singing voice. Uh, when she does the big nightclub, put the blame on Mame number, and also a mono mio, that was dubbed by Anita Ellis. But this particular scene is, is actually Rita singing. Interesting. I do, when I was, when I was revisiting this movie uh, recently, uh, I was struck again by the inclusion of musical numbers. And some of the, the films that we've talked about on Historic Hollywood, you know, um, I think, you know, like Ball of Fire comes to mind almost immediately. Um, I wonder why, what, what happened to including musical interludes in otherwise non-musical films? I wonder why that's something that you don't see very often anymore. Darn it, you should. I, I'm <laughs> right. I agree with you. Like I was watching this movie again the other night, and I'm I'm watching like the you know this even the, you know this one's a little bit quieter, but even the slightly bigger showier one near nearer the end of the movie. I'm wondering why don't we see that? For some reason, the only modern day movie I can think of that has a musical interlude that's not a musical would be Magnolia, when the whole movie stops sure. and the reign of the frogs happens. That's the only thing that comes to mind. And they actually. all, they, you see all the characters singing yeah. the Amy Mann song. Yeah. I would think of Postcards from the Edge with Meryl Streep. Oh, that's a good example too. At the end. I yeah. thought that was pretty powerful. performing for an audience of Uncle Pio. And he is enjoying the heck out of it. He's so pleased. And I love, too, that when he walks in, Uncle Pio looks like he's been caught doing something. <laughs> and Gilda clearly is not phased in the slightest. And also this, like, when she, when she calls him her friend uh, super casually, he turns with this huge smile on his face. I love how the swimming is a euphemism. And I was, think, I was thinking about what, Carrie, about what you were saying earlier about maybe they were able to get away with some of the references that they made because they were clever enough about it and subversive enough about it that maybe a lot of the people whose job it was to pinpoint these things and make a fuss about them just did not catch them. Because this movie is full, absolutely full of references like that, that if you're paying attention, the references are very, very clear. But if you're not, or if, as you said, maybe they just weren't sophisticated enough to catch them, they seem innocent enough on the surface that they could possibly go right over your head. There, are, there were some filmmakers who actually liked censorship. They thought it made you tell the story in different ways. And 
subvert things. And uh, I think a lot of times it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Yes, absolutely. Or the look you deliver while doing so. And this is definitely a great film for that. And it, it paints the characters themselves as being very, very clever. And to me, it's like, you know, I... I mean, I'm certainly maybe not the target audience for a lot of let's let's say uh, you know more modern romantic comedies, but I I also find that many of them to me the relationships in them are not tremendously interesting. It's no. it's two attractive people that just by the end of the movie decide to be attractive together. Um, to me, if you want to make a, a film romance really captivating, you really have to be interested in watching the interplay between the two characters. And to me, that entails making, you know, uh, creating very complex, three-dimensional, intelligent people to watch. And that's what makes the, the building of their relationship or the, in, in this case, it, if not the building of a relationship, certainly the sparring back and forth between the two of them that much more compelling because you know you're looking at, at to, I mean, you, you just listen to the way they talk, and like, Carrie, what you were saying, what they're, what they say, what they don't say, the way they choose to express some of the things that they're expressing. These are are clever people who can absolutely uh, trade jabs and stand toe to toe with one another, and it just makes it very, very uh, compelling to me to watch the ways in which their relationship progresses. To be honest, romantic comedies and even romantic dramas. That is, in the modern age anyway, a very hard genre to get right. And today, Hollywood rarely does. I mean, I, I'm hard-pressed to think of modern examples that capture that. And I think a big part of it is chemistry and catching that lightning in a bottle. And that just doesn't seem to happen. I can think of two. Much today. Which two? Uh, the Notebook and uh, Titanic. Okay. Sure. But those are not... Yeah, you're right. Those are, I guess, fairly more modern examples. But again, it's not... The, the ratio of the ones that don't work versus the ones that work, I'd say, is pretty... I'm, I'm more <laughs> interested in, in Lex rejecting every relationship movie, I think, that's ever been made in color. That was the impression I got. Is that what is that <laughs> what you heard? No, Be there because, because you specifically said that the reason why you're drawn to these characters, I think, is, unless I heard you wrong, was that they're smart. And I think Carrie would agree that probably with the romantic comedies of today is they're not very smart. Sure. The people aren't very smart. Agreed. Yeah, And I wouldn't say every one. I mean, there are certainly, I can point to, the ones that I always, if I have to pick two, the ones that I always go to first, I mean, I, I enjoy When Harry Met Sally. Yeah, I enjoy I enjoy Groundhog Day a lot. That's a good one. Um, but for every one of those, there are about seven that just, I don't, that do nothing for me that I just find to be very... Because you can't believe it. It less even that well I can certainly buy that one attractive person and another attractive person are attracted to each other I'm just not tremendously compelled by that but here you have a history too which a lot of times you don't have in a lot of the rom-coms so to speak so there's a much more of a story it's just it's a hard genre to get right that's that's the main thing I can really say about it it's just it's hard to get that right in in this day and age There's some more of a uh, Carrie's innuendo, I think, <laughs> making its making its way slightly in. <laughs> but now, but now it's becoming more dangerous, right? Look at that shot! Look at that shot. The the shot before it and this one too, and having having Balin taking up just as much of the frame, if not now, he's larger in the frame. Johnny having stepped back and being completely. He's in almost shadow. getting turned on watching the tension between Rita and uh, 
Johnny here, or Gilda and Johnny. Do you know what I mean? And the good. smoking again, the frustration motif. Good. Turn up the heat. Now this is quite an ensemble here. Again, also look for the upcoming uh, whip motif. Ah, yes. That's about to be upon us. Again, Uncle Pio getting to have fun needling Johnny and amusing himself. Well, he seems to have an insight, which is kind of odd. But like Carrie said, it's because he's there all the time. Yeah, and he, he, I believe, uh, he himself references that at one point in the movie that just be working in the washroom, you just, everybody comes through there and you hear everybody talk and you hear everybody's gossip and no one's really paying attention to you. And that's the payoff for that job. It doesn't pay him a lot of money, but boy, is it entertaining. Here it comes. Germans again. You mean the Krauts? Yeah, the, the, those gentlemen. And yeah, the the whole the business with the with the Germans and the cartel and the tungsten enters the movie and goes away just long enough that you'd be forgiven for completely having forgotten about it by the time that these two come back. Well, I think just like uh, Carrie probably has spoken about before, one of the reasons why that's the plot is this is right after the war, so that's why all that stuff's always kind of played up. But it doesn't really mean very much. <laughs> right. In terms of the story, which is kind of an odd thing. Like you said, it just kind of appears. Yeah. Just po once once they introduce it, every so often it pops up. It's like, oh right, this was this is in the movie. Okay. But it is important. Well, it is, and it certainly it drives a good amount of the action in certainly in the final third of the movie. <laughs> Two lovely heads of pigs. He makes me smile every time he's on screen. <laughs> what can I say? I'm all about Uncle Pio.
that shot. Jeez. Okay, while the sun shines. I do enjoy, I mean, uh, so, so, so very much about Rita Hayworth's performance in, in this movie and the way the character of Gildo was written. But I, I think it's so, uh, so well conceived and so well played that you see, you see Gilda doing what she does throughout the entire movie and having, you know, seemingly, at least on the surface, having a very good time doing it. But then you also get in varying doses, depending on the scene, depending on who she's talking to, you get you get these bits of regret that come out of her. Regret and occasionally fear. It's superstition. She's very superstitious. And I just, I love the way that it's contrasted. And like, look at this, her whole face in shadow and she's backlit so that it almost seems to create a, a halo around her as well, which I think... You know, if you want to read into the the lighting design of the scene, I mean, I think that sums up that sums up her character pretty well. By the way, very diaphanous um, dressing gown. Fallon quite literally wearing a cloak with his friend with his friend his Batman weapon <laughs> yep again dancing a uh, euphemism in this case
the hat things right off her head. I just blanched the way he physically sometimes handles her in this film, which we'll see again coming up later. You mean just the the aggression she, of it? Yeah, like, just, I just I I don't like that sort of thing, especially knowing Rita's backstory when she was abused by several different people throughout her life. It's just kind of painful to it see. Do, it, it does absolutely gives it another layer. And I mean, it's it's. But how would you actually ever know that unless you? looked for it like you did like in a book or something how would you ever know the backstory of her you wouldn't unless you read about it i mean yeah because you're saying that that basically affects how you're seeing it well sometimes it kind of bothers you you said i mean sometimes you can't separate uh the art from the artist sometimes you can but i think when you know the backstory about someone's life it gives the films a different meaning or a different level but even if i didn't know her backstory i don't like to see a woman getting shoved around or hit or anybody oh i don't matter, think i don't think know? anybody does yeah and it definitely yes. it's it I, I certainly can't speak to how it played in 1946 being that i i wouldn't exist uh, until sometime after that but no, neither would byron or i in all fairness like oh yeah no, that's, that's not what i was that, saying I, at I, all. I appreciate that <laughs> <laughs> that is not what I was saying at all. But my point is, I I can't comment on the way it would have been perceived by the audiences of the at time. The time but, yeah. but certainly now there is something very uncomfortable in the way that he he physically pulls or pushes her around. But I absolutely agree when you if you know if you learn uh, a lot of the information about her backstory and and some of the things that happened to her while she was growing up, it does absolutely give it uh, uh, an additional connotation that is not necessarily a comfortable one i've known some people who don't want to know the backstory they just want to look at the art purely on its own merits and that's fine it's just for me i i love reading the backstory i love knowing about people's lives and what makes them tick so that kind of informs you know how i see things definitely But then again, I do want to add, like, even in the silent era when Valentino shoved women around or Clark Gable, did, people loved that. Like, they ate it up. So I think times are, are different. Well, I think, of the, I think of the Cagney thing with the... Grapefruit. Right. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I'm totally with you 100%. I think it's atrocious, but I'm also trying to think in terms of the context, just like, I can't even believe I'm quoting Lex. <laughs> but, but, it's, but it's scraping the bottom but of the it, barrel. But it's, but it's the same thing because the context is all wrong. Like you said, there's so many people that just want to see the movie for what it is. Maybe we're just not those people. But yeah, there's all these different ways to look at it. Even Lex seems to be a little bit bothered by it. But the context is all wrong because at the time, like you said, they were loving stuff like that. Even though, even though today we think that's crazy, but at the time that seemed to be something so accepted at that time. Yeah. Shockingly, Lex, a time even before Carrie and I. Yeah, contrary to what you may think, I was not born in 1901. 
I wasn't. I swear to you. Carrie, Carrie and I didn't go to the matinee of Casablanca. I know it's a shock for you, but yeah. uh, we came a little later. That is not what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Byron, you you mentioned uh, briefly you, you, uh, a moment ago. You said the Cagney thing. What what is the Cagney thing that you were referring to? I think it's a film called Public Enemy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he, he's with a girl who basically is his significant other, and he gets so frustrated with her in the same way that these characters are frustrated with each other. And he uh, gets up from his table and he takes a grapefruit, freshly squeezed, and, and smashes it into her face. It's always been used, and I think Carrie will agree, since even when we were young, as a comedic punchline. Yeah. And it's not. And, and if you see the movie, it's, it's not even remotely funny in the movie because it is an act of aggression to show I'm the one that's right. I, what, what I say goes. Kind of like some of these characters as we move along here towards the end in the third act, as you said. But uh, you're right. It, it's not necessarily a positive thing. By any means. The characters in the shadows. That could not have been an easy thing to shoot like that, you know? It's beautiful. Yeah, it looks great. And two, we, uh, we've just seen in the movie uh, the Ballon orchestrated murder of one of the German cartel members. Are you you're referring to the suicide? No, the murder that happened at the carnival. The guy just showed up dead at the bar. Oh, um, forgive me. Forgive no, me. That's okay. There's just so much murder. It's true. And I like, too, that it's, you know, the, the whole room, uh, while, while he's talking to Johnny in this room, they're very much bathed in shadow. And he is, he's, he's putting on a show for Johnny, essentially, because he knows exactly what his plan is now at this point. And I love that as soon as Johnny leaves the room, he drops the pretense. And they the illustrate him dropping the pretense, but he walks over and he turns the light on. And you were saying when we started this uh, film, Lex, about how modern of a film this was, narrative-wise. Yes. And I think that's a really modern narrative device. That was not something you see in a lot of these movies. Even the noirs were characters, in a sense, are multi-layered the way that your Batman villain is. It's, you're, there's a lot more to it. I'm, <laughs> yes. I'm agreeing with you yes. 100%. That's a, that's a smart way to tell a story. Again, smoking, the frustration uh, motif. That's pretty much slipped to the top of her thigh. I mean, that's, that's a great costume. It's uh, it's quite a. You don't see skirts <laughs> slit that high typically, <laughs> in that era. Well, I've asked some people to wear stuff like that, and I guess that's just really inappropriate today. I don't know why. Well, I'll be honest, Byron. I just don't think it would look that good on me. Uh, I hate well. to interrupt this witty <laughs> repartee, but this is about to be a really good scene right here. No, you're actually. right. You're right. It's kind of a turning point, if you will, in the film. Agreed.
the shadows. Yeah, it, it's incredible how frequently like the the they'll use shadows to shadow about a third or up to half of the frame. And so you'll have shots like this where you'll get, you know, uh, Gilda's lit from the neck down and her face is entirely draped in shadow. Watch this, watch this. Again, the way the way she steps forward, not far enough to bring her out of the shadow completely, but enough to create that that haloing effect uh, from the light on her, and then the way her eyes catch the light. There's just something absolutely spellbinding about it, and there, there, uh, like like any good. Uh, comic booky villainous character. He looks tremendous running in a cape. A flowing cape down a flight of stairs, no less. Great shadows, great shot. And I'm one, I wonder too, and I wondered this uh, when I was watching this myself uh, a few days ago. Not that it's all that important, but I'm wondering what the mechanics of this scheme were. Because we do, not to, I mean, I don't think I'm giving anything away. I would assume that anybody who's uh, listening to this has probably seen the movie already at least once. But this is part of a, a larger orchestrated scheme by Balin. So I'm wondering what the mechanic, because you see Balin, presumably Balin, get into the plane, you see the plane fly away, and then you see the plane crash into the ocean. So I'm wondering, did he, did he hop out somewhere? Well, I think it's twofold. You said what the machinations were of what the plan was. I think it was originally one thing, and I think it's been interpreted, especially by the Johnny character, as being something very different. 
I think this was always the plan because I think the people that he's in business with are, are too big for him, for anybody. I mean, it's it's almost like governments, so to speak. But I think in Johnny's eyes, this becomes almost like a love thing, which it may or may not be. Sure. That's why I think it's twofold. I think you're right about what she said, but it's like he seems to have had a specific plan with even telling him all his uh, backstory. And now he sees it in terms of the business plan, but obviously you and I in the audience are seeing this whole thing about how, like, you know, he wasn't planning. He's 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 become melancholy. He's become almost romantic about the whole thing, even though maybe to maybe now it's just business. <laughs> this movie just looks so beautiful. The black and white photography. I mean, I've occasionally encountered people that will find out about my love for classic Hollywood, and they're like, "Oh, I'd never watch a black and white movie." And to those people, they are missing out on some tremendous stuff because of that. I mean, really. Black and white, to me, is just so beautiful. That was one of the conversations that Lex and I first had when we first met, and uh, I don't get it either, because black and white is so beautiful. Scorsese uses it. Woody Allen uses it. A yes. lot of the great modern directors use it, and it's just it looks so great, even better today than it ever did because of the way things have advanced. But people, somehow it's all dated to them. It's all like it's in the past. I think that's so silly. I, I don't understand how you could... I mean, just, just taking this movie, Gilda, as an example, I don't know how you could watch this movie and not be absolutely mesmerized by the images. And it's the way... It's a combination of the black-and-white photography. It's the use of color. It's the, or the use of shadow, rather, not color. What? Uh, the use of shadow, the choices that are made as far as uh, production design and costuming, and the way it just... Every frame of this movie either in part or in its entirety pops and yeah you could you could tell this story in color i suppose but it wouldn't be as interesting no it wouldn't have the dynamic at all there's a lot of power in the frame just because of the black and white and i think the color would dilute it too much and there's some movies that there's some stories that they're just better in black and white. Like, look at Schindler's List. I mean, that was a, a great move to do that in black and white. Tim Burton's Ed Wood. Yes. I mean, Ed Wood's fantastic That in wouldn't have been the same thing in color. And when all those know? people that see the, the black and white Ed Wood, they somehow act like that's, a, that's modern, even though it's, it's still black and white, but they think, oh, it's Tim Burton, so it's, like, cool. They make exceptions, like you were saying earlier about how all the friends that you come in contact with, I would never watch that. I would never watch a black and white movie. But I love Edward. I thought that was great. Edward, he has an ex. I that I think is my favorite of his movies. And it is interesting now, with uh, as far as they're aware, you know, Balin being out of the picture, and they, they get married it doesn't take them very long to get married and now they have uh, access to all of what was once balance or so they believe the power dynamic shifts but the same the same power plays the same games are still are still in play it it shifts but it doesn't change completely or certainly doesn't go away well he's not going to let her forget the past well like uh, like i was saying earlier about the noir stuff that's why this is so different because in any noir movie or, or good noir movie, you never get to this point. This is never part of the story. One of them's either already gone or one of them's been murdered. And, and here we have this uh, a three-way story that still is going strong. I find that fascinating because there's no noir like that. They just said the word decent again. Remember that came up oh, at yeah. the beginning? Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I love these veils. It's a great script. They photograph so beautifully. 
And now the same thing's happening. It's like the repeating of the actions. He now is the Balan. It's kind of odd. And of course, this is really, I would say, the closest in the movie so far that Johnny comes to genuinely being in control. And of course, it is still a sham orchestrated by somebody who is playing him as, as the same person has been playing him since the beginning. Along with all of Balin's uh, resources, property, and his, his enterprise, he also inherits this particular problem.
there is there is something the way Johnny uh, expresses his aggression towards Gilda, be it physical, obviously the physical aspects of it have have their own inherent ugly qualities, but something even just the way he's spitting these barbs at her, there is this just this ugliness to it. Our old friend, Mr. Gabe Evans. There is, as, as, uh, to use the word again, as, as ugly as some of the implications are, uh, there is something so entertaining about this sequence in which we see Gilda going out with a number of men and through uh, Johnny's orchestrations, having them all pulled away. Or in this case, having her driven off. Oh, this is a great number, by the way, and a terrific, terrific outfit. She's wearing too, of course, by the great designer Jean-Louis. Oh, it's her singing too, right? I uh, know this is Anita Ellis actually, who did the this and the, put the blame on Mame number, did the dub for it. But um, also look at Rita's dancing. Look at the way she moves her body; it's just so graceful and so expert, and not over the top too. Just sensual and just right, you know, on the money. I just find her one of the most watchable stars ever. You know, it's so hard to take your eyes off of her. It does. She has this absolutely massive presence, and she just fills the frame no matter how they shoot her in this movie. She's just. Even here, like she's a very small piece in the frame, but she still fills the entire screen with with the essence of her. There's some stars they just have they just reek of star power. Do you know what I mean? And she's one of them. I, to me, I think there are a handful of performances that would rank as some of the sexiest performances in film history. Sure, I'd say Clara Bow in It in the 20s, Jean Harlow in uh, Redheaded Woman in the 30s. I think Rita Hayworth and Gilda in the 40s. I think that would be in the top five, like, sexiest screen performances ever. When you see this film, you see why GIs flipped their lid for Rita. You see that. I mean, um, they actually... 
um, dropped an atomic bomb over Bikini Atoll and actually affixed Rita's image to the atomic bomb. <laughs> and she was really devastated, very angry and upset. She didn't like that at all. But, you know, apparently Orson Welles tried to explain to her that this was their way of paying tribute. This was their way of saluting her because she was so adored by people around the world, particularly the, the GIs. Even later, when she uh, went to Europe and met Prince Ali Khan and all that, people would just scream and chase her. I mean, she had a kind of intense global fame that, um, I mean, Gilda went to every corner of the world, that movie. People really, really love it. I suppose his sales pitches go. <laughs> Again, she's desperate. She wants to get away from Johnny. No such luck. I wonder how long he was sitting there. I wonder how many cigarettes he went through waiting for them.
Tungsten Monopoly. It is great that he does without without intending to. He has this 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 additional role dropped on him. And of course now he's responsible for dealing with everything that comes along with it. Oh gosh, here it comes. Here it comes. One of the most iconic numbers in film history. Legendary gown again, John Louis. It's really amazing they got away with what happens here. It really is. At the time. Well, what what specifically are you referring to? Uh, the strip tease sort of implied, and then you know the take the way she does it. I mean, seriously, she doesn't. I know a modern day person would go, "Well, I don't get it. What the big deal? She's not taking off her clothes." Like, yeah, but for 1946, it is very implied that she's just about to. When she the way she does this is extremely racy in the context of the time it was made. I mean, it it still to, for my money still plays pretty well now. Yeah, I think so too. And look how essentially she works that hair. I mean, my gosh. I don't think any actress has ever used hair to their advantage as she did. <laughs> Look at that. This oh this shot, too. Um, Carrie, we spoke briefly. Uh, the three of us were talking, I think, after our, we recorded our most recent episode of Historic Hollywood uh, about uh, discussing Rita Hayworth and Gilda. That, that shot that I just pointed out. Yeah. The uh, Criterion Collection, as we discussed, putting it the week, I believe, uh, after we are recording this, we're in the middle of January 2016 at this moment, they're putting out a new Blu-ray edition of this movie, and that shot is the cover art on the oh, Blu-ray. And just the sensual abandon is the best phrase I can think of to describe this whole scene and this this number here. And watch this this total like just glee she gets in doing this. Watch the look on her face right here. I get why it's there, but I 
I mean, that was obviously her revenge on Johnny for all the stuff he's done to her. And public revenge, no less. And it does, I mean, given what we've established about Johnny up until this point, it's it's consistent with his character, but especially uh, coming off of such a high-energy, uh, you know, in a, a, a jo- almost joyful musical sequence, it's very even more biting than some of the other uh, equally aggressive acts of violence in this movie. That is not a bad way to sum it up. The most curious love-hate pattern I've... I just... It is interesting. I go back and forth in this movie because you see how there is... Both Johnny and Gilda do seem to, on some level, genuinely love each other, but they also express directly this deep anger, this hatred is the word that they use. They hate each other so much as well. And yet, they do... They seem to deserve each other and yet also be the worst possible things for each other. Oh yeah, it's it's like dynamite and a, a match, you know. They can't stay away from each other. It's like they can't live with each other, they can't live without each other kind of dynamic. I do like this uh, collection of steins in the background <laughs> that he seems to have inherited from uh, Balin as well. It's like we were talking earlier a lot about the production design in this movie, and it's like some of the decorations on these sets are so, so specific. Oh, yeah. And they don't, it's not, uh, they're not, you know, they don't loudly call attention to themselves, which is great. Don't buy this. It was all an act. She didn't mean it. She's really a good girl. Sure. I, I really think. I again. I haven't seen the notes from the production code, but I, I'm kind of wondering if that wasn't somehow. Okay, she can be as wicked as she wants all the other movie, but she's got to be redeemed and proved to be a good girl about the final reel. I don't think that redeems her. Maybe not redeems her, but at least, kind of, explains her actions. Maybe, it was all an act. You know. You mean because she wasn't a whore? That explains her actions? I don't know, Byron. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what you're saying, because he's basically saying nothing ever happened. Well, she's, he's basically saying she didn't do all those terrible things that you're accusing her of doing. It was She was doing it for show, for you. She or was putting or for Balin or whatever, but I don't think that makes her somebody that's beyond redemption. I mean, I don't think she's a very good person anyway. Well, none of them are. Uncle Pio. Uncle Pio is a good person. Well, he, he is a good person. You're right. He means well. And he's nice. He's nosy and gossipy, but he, he means well. He's, he's never mean. He's never mean to anybody.
This is, this is, it is just the most fascinatingly toxic relationship. You have to believe that no matter what happens, it's still not going to end well. And, hmm. She reaches such a great reactor. Apparently Harry Cohn even acknowledged that she does well just reacting to things. And there's Fallon again. And the movie turns once more. And his friend. His friend. Musical inter interludes and weaponized canes, I think. <laughs> Two That's things. what modern day movies are lacking, Lex. Absolutely. Truly. And now Balin fully in black without even an accent of white. So now he is the Batman villain? Yeah. And of course, in it, his his plan has worked up until this point. It has worked brilliantly, and he makes he makes one his one error is putting down his weaponized cane on the counter within reach of Uncle Pio. And it, that was incredibly sudden too. I mean, and that's a very it's it you know not not violent in the sense of it's certainly not gory. It's not bloody. But it's a very sudden, surprising moment of violence. Yeah, but you could argue that they're more violent to each other. Oh, ab absolutely. But it was a surprise. For sure. And then, in a, in a second here, maybe the closest uh, to decent... Uh, the the closest act to a decent one that Johnny uh, at least attempts to commit in the course of the movie is when he attempts to take the rap for this this uh, death so that Uncle Pio does not have to, but of course it ends up not not being necessary. And there's the thing that separates it most of all from all the noirs. It actually has a good ending. Yeah, they actually the two romantic leads actually get to go off together. But but as Carrie mentioned uh, just a couple of minutes and ago, what, and what a price! It's uh, right. It's it's certainly hard to imagine that this is going to be a happily ever after. But for the moment, unlike you, you mean you don't you don't have any faith in in these two <laughs> because that, because after seeing the movie, that's the one thing I have. Because if they can get to that point, I think. It will work. Yeah? Because unlike with you and your youth and Carrie and her darkness, <laughs> I'm optimistic. I have hope. <laughs> but if you guys want to be who you are, I'm not going to change it. We are who we are, Byron. We are, we are who we are. <laughs> Got that right. 
<laughs> You're stuck with us. I have oh hope. man, that that is Gilda, and I mean, it is uh, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal movie, and it is it is transfixing. I mean, there were a number of points in this movie where I certainly was. It's essential. I, it's an essential film. And I just caught myself watching, you know. Um, but it's it's phenomenal, and it plays. I think plays just as well today as it must have when it came out. It does, as we talked about, it feels uh, for a movie of the mid 1940s. It feels incredibly, incredibly modern. Um, so, uh, guys, before we sign off, anything, any final thoughts? Oh well, of course, because uh, I think Carrie did such a great job getting us started. We're going to do our Rita Hayworth episode on Friday. I believe we're going to be recording this this Friday at ten, I think. Yes. So you guys, uh, if you want to, you can check that out live, or of course, it will live uh, normal places. And uh, I'm getting the online. feeling that because of the research that Carrie's done, it's going to be pretty chock full. Oh yeah. Well, I got more to do. I've always got more to learn. <laughs> always more to read. Always more to learn. Yeah, yeah. there is there is going to be a lot to unpack on this show. So we hope you will join us for that. Uh, that is uh, going to be on Historic Hollywood. In the meantime, uh, where can people find you guys on the internet? At Film Radar on Twitter. At Byron Lee. And I'm Lex Michael, all over social media at the Lex Michael. Thank you for joining us. We love Gilda. We hope you did too. We will see you the next time that we see you. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.